0: Lob Talk Radio. about today's program. Uh, this is the program that we intended to do in January, but due to a variety of technical factors, we are now doing it in February. I have two wonderful guests to introduce you to, uh, Shani Mandel and Cindy Andrew Bowen. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves to you all. Our topic, of course, for the day is, is the new ABA really new? So, uh, Shawnee, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself first, and then we'll have Cindy introduce herself, and then we're going to dive into this topic. Shawnee, go ahead.
1: Hi. Uh, so, my name is Shawnee, and I am a former BCBA. Um, it expired uh, in 2021, I believe, and I'm currently certified under Dr. Green as a CPS provider. Um, and I identify as multiply neurodivergent. Cindy?
2: Yes, hi. I'm Cindy, and I have been working um, with within the population of um, autistic people specifically for 22 years within the field of behavior analysis, and I currently hold my BCBA certification. I'm also in the process of pursuing my CPS credential.
0: Um, I'm delighted that you all are on the program. Um, I can't think of anybody more qualified to talk about whether the new ABA is really new besides two board-certified behavior analysts, so I think we are in good hands here. Let's start with the basics just for the unfamiliar, Um, and Cindy, I know you're going to take this one. What is applied behavior analysis or what we'll be referring to as ABA?
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, So applied behavior analysis is based on the perspective that behavior is lawful, which means that behavior results from learning histories and interactions with the environment. And the practice of applied behavior analysis is the systematic, it's like a systematic approach that relies on data to change behaviors um, and the, the real question, the topic at hand, is what behaviors are, are ethical to change. I feel like that's what we're going to dive into today. So we're supposed to be addressing behaviors of social significance. Got it. Shawnee, anything to add to
0: that?
1: I would just uh, make a distinction that there's the science of behavior analysis and the application of behavior analysis. So for purposes of, I think when, when the average, the discussions that we're having when we say ABA, I think we're talking specifically about, um, what, I'm reading from my, from my ABA textbook to be accurate, and there's uh-huh. practice by behavior analysis, right? So the actual practices that are being done. So that's, that's I believe, Cindy, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we're saying, like, if I'm getting ABA services or should I do ABA for my kid, that's what they're talking about, those practices, those techniques that are being used, the interventions.
2: Yes, I will agree with that.
0: But it does raise a very interesting point, and that is that sometimes what we learn in science about the laws of behavior don't always translate into practice, which is very interesting, and I'm not sure uh, everybody would necessarily agree with what I just said, but that's okay. Um, before we jump into the new ABA, let's talk about, and I don't know if we wanna refine your answers here, but what defines ABA and who does it? And uh, Shani, do you wanna take a crack at that one?
1: Um, ABA would be defined by there's seven dimensions that make ABA
2: officially the ABA. Cindy, I think you had those um, written down. Would would you take those? I do. I'd be happy to jump in here. So those seven dimensions, I like to I like to remember it by the acronym Get a Cab because my initials are CAB, so it's really easy for me to remember this but the seven dimensions are generalizability, which means that the outcomes and interventions can be carried out by people across settings and the person's community, that the intervention is effective, <clears throat> that the intervention is technological, which means that it's written such that it's like replicatable, multiple people can enact it. Those are the G-E-T, and then... A is applied, um, which means that it is applicable in the natural environment. Conceptually systematic is like kind of an annoying scientific term that is referring to it's rooted in the science of behavior and evidence-based, meaning there's been studies on it ideally, and then uh, we have analytic, which means it's data driven and behavioral, which means it's addressing a behavior. Shawnee, feel free to, to enhance my explanation if you want. Yeah, that, that was great.
0: There you um, have it. All right. Shawnee, go ahead.
1: We can I can speak to uh the second part of your question which was who does it? So we – actually, that's an interesting question because this is – in this field, the ones who are doing it, right, the direct service are behavior technicians. So this I thought was important to bring in here. Um, Behavior technicians have – in some states, they're required to have 40 hours of training. Um, In the places that I worked in, a few different states, they were not even required that um there's no education requirement that I know of other than a high school diploma. So this is those are the people on the you know on the ground doing it. And then there's a usually a supervisor comes in occasionally and creates the plan from behind the scenes.
2: Well and I'll add that there there are like supervision requirements but they're relatively no low They're At least 5% of a behavior technician's direct work needs to be supervised. And the board-certified behavior analyst is someone who has a master's degree and has uh, completed, uh, like, supervised experience in the field with, yeah. And, of course. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, Ross.
0: Well, of course, both of you went through the training that um, permitted you to be called a board-certified behavior analyst. One of you plans to keep your certification, and the other one plans to let it lapse. Before we go into um, your stories about why you're doing what you're doing, let's bring Mm -hmm. the new, quote-unquote, new ABA into the mix, um, what is the new ABA? And Shawnee, do you want to take that one?
1: Um, I think let's uh, Cindy. You start with this one. I think you have
2: okay
1: the answer for this. So,
2: as a practicing DCBA, I'm I'm I have to stay on top of literature and continuing education. So I'm trying to keep a read on the vibe of ABA the current practice of the ABA and what's making people call it new. And so what I'm seeing in the literature and what I'm hearing about what the new in air quotes referring to I believe is is more of concepts such as there's a greater emphasis on honoring the assent and the consent of the participant. There's also a greater emphasis on Look like working with compassion as the aim instead of compliance as the aim, which was historically ABA has the reputation of being compliance-based, so new ABA is striving to be more compassionate than compliant. There is definitely room for growth, which I'm sure we'll talk about on this podcast, but I think those are the two main things that the newness is being referred to, but ABA as, as a science and as a practice um, still relies heavily on the lawfulness of behavior, and the interventions are still relatively the same, but towards different aims with compliance and assent incorporated more readily.
0: Um, let me Shani, ask you, to you go into to a little bit more. Uh, uh, before we turn to Shani, Cindy, uh-huh. um, oh, if the practices are the same, and I don't know how you're practicing or what strategies you're using, how do mm-hmm. you incorporate compliance, excuse me, um, compassion and assent into the existing practices of aba it sounds like a step in the right direction how does it play out in real life
2: i'm glad you asked so some behavior analysts are operationally defining compassion as the alleviation of distress or the prevention of distress and in the ethics code for bcbas the very I don't know if it's the very first thing, is, is do no harm and benefit the person, so the person being served. So in in that regard, compassion would be like the aim of the intervention is to alleviate distress and prevent distress, so towards the aim of teaching skills like self-advocacy. Um, and then there's also, for assent. there's, some research coming out that defines assent in terms of not only uh, like going along with, like uh, agreeing to do the intervention, but also having degrees of freedom, which means that you can choose between options of how to how to achieve that particular. Outcome that meaningful outcome. There's like three different intervention choices ideally But I say that there's research that's come out along these lines, but the vast majority of board-certified behavior analysts aren't All the way there yet on the compassion and assent. but that is where we're headed and that I think is what the new is currently trying to capture
0: Sean, you want to jump in?
1: yeah i think it's just um important just to say here that there's varying which kind of i think Ben said this too but there's varying degrees of change happening so i, mm-hmm. I not that you know the field as a whole is saying let's do this um, although there was the latest um, code of ethics did finally include in a very vague way and that was a big change, and that is, of course, field wide. But uh, it was very vague, and um, I, um, I don't want people to misunderstand that that this is something that's happening across the board. I think there are there are different Pocket. people. There, yeah, I was thinking pockets, but that, I was I left in 2021, so I don't know for sure how it is now. But I do know that there's varying degrees of newness and change. And um it's not happening everywhere. I wanna say that well, um in my experience, so my last ABA actually in the field was in twenty twenty, right? So right in the middle of the pandemic and all that. And um I was trying to implement some of these things that Cindy mentioned, um, like assent and compassion over compliance. Um, one thing I wanted to add in also is um not no longer using punishment, right? That that should be a an easy an easy switch. We um, mm-hmm. would hope. And in 2021, and this was a people who were looking to be, you know, list, listening to autistic voices. And still, there was a lot of pushback, and that's why I ultimately left. I realized that that the the new things that were being talked about. It wasn't necessarily even happening just because there were discussions. So yeah, that's, that's well, what I just wanted to
0: add. That. You're both making the point that we can't treat ABA as a monolith. Mm-hmm. Um, no yeah. two BCBAs practice in exactly the same way. Um, but what you're saying is a trend, at least in some uh, circles of the ABA community is toward compassion and assent, and that assent has even made its way into some of the guiding principles. Um, yes. Would you say that those are the two ways in which what is being called the new ABA is different? Is that at what is that the entirety of what's meant by new?
1: You mean a
2: sentence. yeah, and what Shawnee added about the removal of punishment as it it's no longer acceptable except in extreme conditions, and even then, yeah, punishment has fallen way out of favor as it should um and i would I would say that
1: there's I was seeing it in my latest jobs, not you know and trigger warning for listeners um not in the extreme ways of aversive like electric shocks but I was still seeing things like removal of privileges or response costs right I think it's called um when you yeah
2: yeah lose
1: you've earned due to the behavior that you committed so in more subtle ways um punishment is still definitely happening um, yeah, that's
0: a good All one. right, so, so let's let's turn our attention to um what has been among the most vocal critics of ABA, and that would be the neurodivergent community. community. Um what have those objections be been, just for the um unfamiliar? What have people been objecting to? And we've already alluded to some of it, but um, Shawnee, why don't we also take first crack at that? Unless I've got the wrong person, um, what what have people been objecting to?
1: So I have a list of a few, but it's not including everything. But I just wanted to get some out there. I know there's plenty more. Um, some things I've heard within the community is um, observation not allowed was one kind of like yeah. a this was uh this is a red flag of this is a problematic um therapy this is how they were describing it indefinite therapy was another issue um you know at what point is this ending extreme hours um yeah we that was definitely we were all told that 40 hours is the way to go uh targets autistic traits for reduction right such as mm-hmm. stimming Trains eye contact is a, another big one. Um, there's a focus on outward behavior instead of – focus on changing outward behavior instead of looking at what is the inner experience of the, of the client. Um, expecting compliance, punishment of any kind, and this is a big one. Prioritizing mouth words as the most acceptable form of communication – That's a pretty, pretty big complaint.
0: Why, I don't want to um, ask silly questions here because for some of our listeners, the objections to those things are obvious, but why did the neurodivergent community object to many of the things that you just listed?
1: Mostly they, they just feel it's unkind and not therapeutic, right? Therapeutic is supposed to improve your quality of life. Um it in the ND community is saying that these interventions are causing distress and decreasing quality of life. Cindy, do you wanna weigh in? Can I jump in? Of
0: course.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so in particular, the targeting of autistic traits for reduction, such as stimming that Shani pointed out, that is, that's called masking. If you are teaching, um, teaching autistic people to suppress traits that are innate to them and work extra hard to conform, to a neurotypical expectation, that requires a lot of effort and it diminishes their ability to be happy and achieve things that they want to achieve. And so there's long-term detrimental effects to that too, like depression, suicidality. So it's really important that when there is intervention in place that the aim of the intervention is not to reduce autistic traits, it's to enhance that autistic person's life. Yeah, so I would say that's probably the most common complaint um, in addition to the other things that Shawnee said. And imagine if you're getting that type of treatment four, 30 hours a week where you're being asked to suppress autistic traits, that that would be very damaging. So not all, all ABA providers do that. That's where we need to get this lens change, this neurodiversity-affirming lens change in place because applied behavior analysis can actually help. It's supposed to help, and so just approaching it with the proper lens is i think what needs to happen across the board
0: so let's talk about proper lens in a little bit more detail because i've heard people who object to aba say that their biggest objection is that it tries to make people with autism not look like they have autism, Um, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't go over well. Can you talk a little bit more about um, what you mean?
2: Sure, you want me to go first? Sure. Okay, so when we say not look as autistic, or suppressing autistic traits, the most common behaviors that have historically been targeted in that regard are the teaching of eye contact as a important skill, like prioritizing teaching eye contact, um, which is actually can be painful and can take away from other processing abilities if someone is focusing on eye contact when that is not a natural way of listening and processing for a person. Then also self-stimulatory behavior, which is repetitive or restrictive behaviors or interests that serve a very valid function for autistic people. Um, So the most commonly observed one would maybe be like hand flapping or jumping up and down, and those could be expressions of joy, those could be self-regulating behaviors, those could be communicating something to someone else. There was a time when it was felt by society that those types of self-stimulatory behaviors were stigmatizing and that we would be doing a favor to people by training them not to do those behaviors. And I think that was before the general population understood neurodiversity. And so the field of ABA was trying to help at that time by suppressing these behaviors, not realizing that these behaviors serve life-giving functions. So those are the two primary areas of, like, training out um, autistic skills, but probably also social skills. There's been a lot of research on training social skills to autistic people before, we realized as a society that autistic people just social differently than neurotypical people, and that is not a worse way to social. It's just a different way to social. And so it actually is harmful to train people to socialize in a manner that is not natural to them.
0: Shani, I'm going to let you say your piece in a second because it sounded like you did have something to say, but, you know, this does raise a very interesting question and that is who decides what's best for a kid who decides what's helpful who decides what's therapeutic um you know that has been very adult driven for most of human evolution um and it certainly has been a very big part of aba um who gets to decide that is a very interesting discussion point. Johnny, go ahead. What were you going to add?
1: I wasn't. I was agreeing. I think about social skills. Got it. I forgot to add that.
0: <laughs> Got it. So let me ask this: Does the quote-unquote new ABA satisfy the objections certain segments of our community? have had um, to the old ABA. Who wants to take that one?
1: I can take that. Go ahead. Um, I will say that it's really varying degrees of objections being satisfied at by different, by varying degrees of people, like some people are satisfying it to Varying degrees. Some are satisfying it more than others. Again, it's really not across the board. Um, and I haven't—I did leave the field three years ago, but I haven't seen anyone completely satisfying all the complaints.
0: Cindy.
2: And I would love—I would love to add on. <clears throat> I would say that the new ABA is not does not satisfy is not yet, but has the potential to satisfy. I think that where the new ABA is more about compassion and assent, it could be and should be more about allyship and about intervening on ableism. Because we have have the tools to intervene on behaviors, I feel like we should be intervening on the behaviors of ableism and teaching the community and society to better understand the neurodiversity-affirming lens.
0: Just in case we have people who aren't as acquainted with the term ableism as we might be assuming, can you say more about what that means?
2: Sure. So ableism is the belief that able-bodied, um, both physically and from a cognitive perspective, neurotypical people, which are sort of the norm of society where you don't have an intellectual or a developmental disability, you would be considered neurotypical. And able-bodied would be that you don't have a physical disability, either invisible or visible. And ableism is where people feel as though everyone should be able to operate, or operating as though you are neurotypical and able-bodied is the best and default way to operate. And therefore, if you have delays or you have differences, then that is less than as opposed to equal to neurotypical and able-bodied people.
0: So the objection, simply put, is, that there's a neurotypical reference point for yes. what we should expect and, and what's quote unquote what, what, what we're striving toward and um, there are many people in the neurodivergent community who don't want that to be the reference point they are their own reference point um, very interesting um, so going back to what the new ABA brings to the table is compassion and assent. Um, In in what ways, and you both are saying we're not all the way there yet because ABA is not a monolith, and the new ABA is not a monolith. Um, what, What would compassion and assent change about anything in terms of how BCBAs operate.
2: Do you want me to go first, Shawnee? Sure. Oh, never. I think that if compassion and assent are the lens with which behavior analysts and behavior technicians approach goal writing, then we would be asking ourselves what will make, what goals will make this individual's life less distressing, which I think, you know, is decent. Um, If you're thinking about, okay, self-advocacy would make life less distressing. We could teach them to let other people know when there's something bothering them in in the environment or um, having the ability to communicate uh, with an AAC or in whatever way is comfortable will make life less distressing for them. So we should target that. Goals of social significance. Um, I still think that approaching from a, like, compassionate, less distressing standpoint, while good, could be better. Like, I really think that, Approaching from an allyship standpoint, which is one step even further than compassion, would be like, not only are we going to work on life being less distressing for you, but we're going to work on life being great for you. And in order to do that, we need to not just work on the person and goals for that person, but work on goals for that person's community so that they recognize areas that they could be adjusting the environment and their expectations and the way they interact with this person that truly values what that person has to give. Not just make their life easier, but make their life, you know, great, like what neuro- neurotypical people are entitled to.
0: Shawnee, anything to add to that?
2: Yeah, so
1: this is to me one of the most complex parts of, of all this discussion. Um, so I think your original question was, if we were using compassion and assent, what would that actually look like? Is that, is that what you asked? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What would
1: that change? So what would that change? So for me, and this is my personal opinion, this is not, um, the opinion of anyone else that, I, you know, I'm speaking for myself, I have a hard time seeing where where anything that the field has to offer, you know, we can add in compassion, but that's, that's compassion is a lovely thing to to have in life. But I don't see where what the field is offering is, is really needed. Um, I see, so meaning adding compassion just re- is minimizing harm, but it's still not um, good enough, in my opinion. And I see more, I mean, I did. Um, I think when Cindy and I were chatting, and I asked, like, what 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 is left once you remove the parts of ABA that are harmful? And Cindy, do you want do you want to answer that, or should I say what you had told me?
2: Sure, I'll try. I'll try and remember what we had talked about, and then you can remind me too. But I think I was saying to per, like the behavior analyst is positioned to provide insights on how a person's experience um, or behavior is, a, is, like, a result of interactions with the environment and environmental arrangements because we believe behavior is lawful. So we're really good at observing uh, behaviors of concern or struggle and kind of deducing, like, what's up what is the mismatch between the environment and the expectation and kind of guide guide others on, you know, what to do with that information. Yeah, it's like we,
1: we're trained really well at seeing patterns and how to analyze the data of those patterns. And um, and I I like that idea of that we could be support we well It's not. I'm not a BCBA anymore. But BCBAs could be support and consult for other providers who maybe have the training in um, the therapeutic change that the client might need. Whereas um, the the interventions that I've been seeing used to directly target change for the child, um, I'm I'm preferring other other uh, professions come in and fill that role this if it was up to me so
2: compassion so like on. as. go ahead Cindy. as like a, uh, a point of referral as well like noticing that there there seems to be a communication gap so I would refer to a speech-language pathologist or there seems to be like sensory differences that could be more effectively intervened upon by an occupational therapist, like a guiding role. Is that what you're saying, Shawnee? Yeah.
1: And then um, because we're, we might see variables in the environment that, that mm-hmm. let's say, train to look at the patterns of how environment and behavior interact. So we might have things to highlight and illuminate to them.
2: hmm yeah, I you agree know, the with
0: part that of as this, well. The part of this that I find most interesting is the, well, two parts, the, both compassion and assent. Compassion is tricky. Because everybody has their own definition of what it means to be compassionate. I've heard it said, and this is not an ABA practice, so I'm not attributing right. this to ABA, but there are people who say that hitting a kid is an act of love. Uh, and, of mm-hmm. course, there are many people who think that that ab- makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I'm one of them. Mm-hmm. So what's compassionate? Uh, compassion's tough, especially when we have practices like hitting, falling within that category. Assent is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always said that the biggest differences, not the only, but the biggest differences, between collaborative or proactive solutions and applied behavior analysis is that in the CPS model, um, we are very dependent on the kid to help us know what's making it hard for them. Um, Many BCBAs figure that out all on their own through their powers of observation. And in CPS, the kid is integrally involved in coming up with a solution, and we don't sign off on a solution, unless the kid is good with it, many BCBAs are coming up with a solution all on their own and imposing it. Um those are some big differences. Um what's interesting is, um Cindy, you've been using the word allyship, which sounds like we are moving in the direction of collaboration. I know that both mm-hmm. of you are being trained in the collaborative and proactive solutions model at this point. Now, I'll make sure we talk about that a little bit in terms of, number one, what um, prompted you to decide that you wanted to be trained in CPS, and what are the biggest differences you are seeing between ABA and CPS? Sid, do you want to kick that off?
2: Yeah, I would love to. I think that you're highlighting a beautiful a beautiful point of divergence, but where it doesn't need to diverge between ABA and CPS, which is at the ascent, at the ascent piece in CPS, you truly are getting ascent. If, if you're not moving forward without the learner's input <clears throat> and solution seeking, like that is obviously an ascent. There's, there's participation there. So in ABA, assent is loosely defined as uh, uh, like a response towards sort of like approach responses, participation responses, but it's it's not even free from coercion in the in the definition that is in the task list or the like the basic definition of assent in the BACB paperwork, um, the definition is not very specific. In the literature, it is more specific and it goes into ensuring that there are choices, but even with choices, you're not getting the level of collaboration that is required in CPS. So I don't even remember what the original question was, but (laughs) I agree with this sentiment that collaboration is more obviously a sense than just going along with or even having choices.
0: Got it. And I'm thinking that that may also answer the question, what drew you to CPS?
2: Yes, 100%. It's the collaboration and and wanting to be an ally.
0: Got it. Shawnee. what are your thoughts?
1: Um, with the ascent piece, and you, you mentioned Cindy that it's, eh, we haven't even gotten to the point where we're realizing that ascent is maybe maybe still including coercion, and, and that's the piece where um, the child is asked to do a task, and if they do the task, they will earn their reinforcer, which is a toy, let's say, and so then they assent to do the task and earn their reinforcer. Is that ascent? Because they could not get access to that toy without doing the task. That's an element of coercion. So that's, um, that there's varying degrees of assent and yeah, Mm -hmm. CPS is a CPS is exactly, it's a very different look at consent. Um, in fact, they're part of the very process from the beginning.
2: Um, and
1: I think you asked why, yeah, why I moved to CPS. So, um, well, I, in my last few years, you know, I fell into ABA as a, a teenager, really straight out of high school, and I was just doing what I was told. Um, was
0: <laughs> what, what, a, what an interesting statement that is, but keep going.
1: Well, that's how ABA works, right? You do what you're told. Yeah, so yeah. You do.
0: <laughs> that's, that's why I was chuckling.
1: Yeah. And over the years I had this niggling voice in the back of my head that something is not right. And then eventually I decided, okay, I'm gonna find the ABA places that I can that that have my same values. That I mean, the biggest thing I wanted to see changed was that we're not okay with making a child cry on purpose. That was my first big thing. And I found thought I found a place like that and then I was trying to bring further things about um, you know scent, and is it true scent if you're if there's only one way they could earn the reinforcer um, eventually I realized it, it was just on my mental health too taxing to be trying to do this uphill battle and so I took like about a year off of of doing anything and really just wanted to what the other methodologies are and I found yours and it you had created the words and the framework in a very well-packaged way for what I've been trying to put into words for myself so then I was like oh I'm getting trained in that. <laughs> that's my story
0: um, and we're glad and, you're sticking with it go ahead David. yeah
2: I was going to say that um, my training in behavior analysis, and I think you've mentioned this in the past too, Ross, that you, you have behavioral training in your background as well. I think that that, um, that enhanced my appreciation and ability to implement your CPS approach because you're already looking upstream for what's causing the concerning, the concerning behaviors. You're already looking at the unsolved problems, and I would say a behavior analytic approach. And when I'm looking at CPS and the behaviors we're looking to change, it's not the kids' behavior. We're looking to change the environment and the community's behavior I mean, you definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but we're still looking at behaviors, but we're looking at the behavior of collaborative problem solving, not the behavior of biting or whatever the concerning behavior was. So I found we- that my training in, in the ABA really lent itself to being able to understand and work with CPS.
0: Um, And the only thing I would slightly modify about that is that um, while we might be looking at behavior in the CPS model, we're mostly viewing concerning behavior as a frustration response. Mm -hmm. A frustration response is in response to something. And Mm -hmm. in the CPS model, we are looking at that something, mostly an unsolved problem, and trying to solve it. Rather than looking at the behavior and trying to modify it.
1: So um, an interesting question am, is.
0: Go ahead. Yeah.
1: I'm sorry. Is the the expectation is that could that be equated to an ABA, the behavior that's targeted for increase? I yeah. don't know. I'm I'm putting that out there.
0: Uh, I, um, you know, an expectation can be the desired behavior. For example, raising your hand um, um, before responding in social studies, raising hand is a behavior. It's not the concerning behavior. The concerning behavior is calling out. So are we looking to increase raising hand? Sure. But in the CPS model, we're trying to find out from the kid what's making it hard for them to raise their hand in the first place. And we're addressing Mm -hmm. that in other forms of treatment. We are teaching, reteaching, and reinforcing the raising of the hand without necessarily having the slightest idea what's making it hard for the kid to raise their hand in the first place. And that is a very fundamental distinction, and it has a great deal to do with where we're going to end up as a solution. If we find out from the kid, for example, um, that... The difficulty is, and I hear this sometimes, it's not always the issue with difficulty raising hand, um, but that if they don't call out, they're not going to be able to remember what they wanted to say. All right, the solution to that is going to look very different than simply teaching, reteaching, and reinforcing a replacement behavior, which is why in the CPS model, we care a great deal about what the kid tells us is making it hard for them to meet a particular expectation, that is going to have tremendous ramifications for the kinds of solutions that we might entertain. And I think that might be the biggest difference. So it's interesting. Um, While writing your thoughts down on a note card might be a solution that helps the kid not call out in social studies the way we arrived there in the CPS model involves the kids' voice, the kids' engagement, the kids' participation, and I think that's probably the biggest difference.
2: Regrettably, yeah, I, we have to. I end. agree, ahead, and Vivi. I see, I see no reason. So sorry for speaking over you. Russ. No, no, I no, was no, just so getting sorry. excited, um, but I see no reason why we couldn't incorporate those very important steps into more interventions like ABA. Like, it should be a part of the ascent and informed ascent process is getting the students' input, getting the learners' input. But I don't think we're there in the ABA field right now. I agree with you.
0: I want to thank you both. We do have to end because we are well over our time. Boy, have I learned a lot during this program. I want to thank you both. Here's my take-home message. There might be some new things about the new ADA, but compassion and assent don't go far enough. Um, that's my take-home message. Um Any final thoughts from either of you before we call it a day on today's podcast?
1: I'm just really glad to be here and really glad to be able to do this.
2: Same. Thanks for having us.
0: I really appreciate appreciate you being on. Um, And, uh, well, we'll do this again next next month. I do want to remind people, just because it's topical, that the Lives in the Balance Annual Summit is coming up on April 12th. It is free this year and will be every year moving forward. And the reason I'm bringing it up now is because the theme of this year's summit is Voices of the Neurodivergent Community. Um, So we will have the registration link on the summit live on the Lives in the Ballots website, hopefully by tomorrow. But once again, Johnny and Cindy, much appreciated. This has been a very informative program. Thank you both very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye.